Hello and welcome to another installment of the War Eye Football Podcast with me, Etchester Doku, and Michael Dryden. With their season opener against Arsenal just a couple of weeks away, we'll take a look at Brentford, their ownership structure, the B-team model, and we'll discuss whether the B-team model is the right thing to do within the football game. Before we start, please follow us on Twitter at YFootball underscore and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and YouTube. Dryden, how you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm not bad. I will edit out you just making a, an absolute mess of that um, intro. But uh, yeah, so when you listen to this, it'll sound smooth. But <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm very good. Got a week a week off work, so heading to Bath. That's all area of the world or area of the UK for a staycation. Never been there before, so you know it's going to rain. So if you know any, if you know anyone who's got some ideas for two-player board games, let me know. <laughs> Because <laughs> we'll be struggling for ideas, but no, looking forward to that. Um, bit pessimistic for the League One season starting. Don't, not just, not to drop drop that already, but it starts next Saturday. We've actually had a Sunderland have had quite a decent preseason in terms of results and some of the youth players coming through. But we've signed so far three players, um, and we lost in total, if you include loan players, nine players last season. So the, the squad is so thin. Um, little bit pessimistic, but. Aside from that, Jess, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, so is Lee Brokatamol still there? or He's not, but a uh, plot, plot twist there. We're still, and this has been happening for a number of years, which a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be aware of, due to the fact that our club was run so badly uh, and certain players were on quite big contracts and we could never ship them because, you know, you sign average players on big contracts, you can't get rid of them. Um, I mean, Catamol was okay for us in the long run, but we're still apparently paying off part of his wage. <laughs> he left the club like two years ago. Uh, so yeah, he's not with us, unfortunately. Uh, Will Grigg is still with us and scored last night in a friendly, so he could be on fire this season because so far he's been pretty fire retardant, shall I say? <laughs> that was nice, dude. <laughs> that was on the spot as well. So fair play to you. That was, that was clean. That was clean. Uh, I'm well, thanks. Um, cutting my hair, which is a big thing since we started the oh, podcast. Nice. I haven't actually trimmed my hair, which is over a year ago now. So I'm in the process of doing that. I don't think anyone's going to care about that point, but to me, it's uh, it's, it's a big thing. Well, so, well, it's quite relevant because you just you discussed this actually probably about a year ago, and you you said that you shared the barber with Ian Pavida, who we're going to talk about later on today. So it's quite relevant. <laughs> it is quite relevant, and, I, and also I'm annoyed now because I was going to mention that again on this pod. Um, so <laughs> you're welcome, you're welcome yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just FYI, you mentioned that a few times because obviously we both look top tier all the time. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I'll be doing that later on today. Um, on the on the football front, obviously Arsenal have been pretty busy, so it's looking fairly promising for the squad. But there's still much to be done. Mm. I think. <clears throat> I think the thing, the big thing for me recently has been the switch up with the Olympics. I've been watching it like every day. I've become a gymnastics expert. Uh, oh, nice! And I'd probably say, what's the second sport I've watched quite a lot? Probably rugby sevens. I've watched quite a bit of that. Um, which has been pretty, pretty good stuff. Uh, got no time for dressage. <laughs> what? <laughs> you look. I'm watching you make a horse dance. You must be fucking mad. <laughs> you, <laughs> you must be mad. I'd rather. I'd rather watch paint dry. You know what? I don't care who you are. If you support dressage, I'm sorry. That's just you're wrong. But I just don't <laughs> get right how you can literally win a medal when the horse is just twerking. For like a performance, I don't get it. I just, I just, I just don't get the tech. Like obviously, there's going to be some guy out there who's an equine expert who's going to be like, oh yeah, like they're doing these taps on the horse's head and it does these moves. It is absolutely bottom tier. <laughs> scrap if you could scrap anything from the Olympics, get 
rid of dressage. Absolutely bombed it. That's all I have to say on it. Oh, I was just going to say let's let's scrap Brentford and just discuss Olympic topics. Sounds quite quite enjoyable to be fair. Yeah, no, dressage is just it's just so bad. I mean, like even 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 the sailing ones are pretty cool, like the turns and stuff. But like, yeah, I'm sorry, dressage is <laughs> dressage is the equivalent of like being liquidated as a football club. That's how bottom tier it is. Anyway, oh, wow. We'll, 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 yeah, we'll move on from that one. Um, <laughs> we, we we digress. Yeah, um, yeah. I've not really seen much of the of the Olympics to be fair, but. Uh, I think this week I'm going to hopefully get back into it because I love watching the obscure sports. To be fair, like you just never see until the Olympics rolls around. But but anyway, let's let's move back on to uh, to Brentford. Um, and JC just asked the question of why this episode this week, as we don't as we usually do. Uh, Brentford have finally made it to the Premier League under Thomas Frank, as most people uh, would be aware of. The first off against Arsenal in the Premier League opener, um, Friday night football on the thirteenth. They're quite infamous for scrapping their academy, one of the first teams to do so, or one of the kind of highest profile teams to do for, do so in the Football League. They're also very infamous, and we'll go on to this, um, in regard to clever, clever scouting, statistical modelling in their recruitment um, and in performance management within the squad. Um, and so, hey, yeah, we, 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 started the, we started the podcast, what, 60 episodes ago? We started uh, over a year ago now, and Brentford B... The whole concept around it was one of the topics that we we said this is exactly the sort of thing we want to look at and focus on and exactly the sort of topic we want to uh, look at in the podcast and we've just never got around to doing it but now is an opportune uh, time to do so with Brentford's debut Premier League, Premier League season on the horizon. Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's crazy how long the pod's gone on. Uh, thank mm. you to Phil and his ageless dog for getting the views <laughs> in. Um, so to those of you that don't know, I actually wrote a note about uh, me having the same barber as uh, Ivan Pavetta because obviously <laughs> he he is part of the reason why Brentford closed their academy, which is the relevant point. The yeah. follow-up point was me and Ivan Pavetta have the same barber, but unfortunately that was already mentioned. So I'm just going to leave that one. I'm going to leave that one there. You know what? Actually, that barber... Um, aired my message because I, I wanted him to cut my hair recently he's ignored me so I reckon what's happened is is Ivan Pavetta's listened to the pod and has gotten happy that you know obviously I'm more famous than he is so I think mm. the barber's cut me off yeah yeah true I mean he's got bigger fish to fry seemingly uh I mean he's moved down but back back to Leeds it's also pre-season he might be back in London Pavetta so you never know it could be taking up his time. Uh, <laughs> so I think we'll just start off quickly with who are Brentford, for those that are unfamiliar, that aren't the most well-known club in terms of their history. Um, they're nicknamed the Bees. That is a particularly famous nickname that people are aware of. Um, the club was founded in 1889 and played their whole matches at Griffin Park from 1904 um, before they moved to the Brentford Community Stadium uh, last year. Yeah, absolutely fantastic stadium as well. Um, I visited it with a good friend of mine uh, who is also a pod listener. Shout mm. out to James. Uh, he, yeah, he, he, we went there after the playoff final when <laughs> I'm laughing because every car, obviously he was in a Brentford top. We watched it in the pub. Every car you passed that saw you in a Brentford top or Brentford scarf would be like window down. We're going up. <laughs> We're going up. And like when it when it happens ten times, you're like, ah, oh, this is sick. And then when it happens like a hundred times, you're like, <laughs> it's like drunk dads with like their sober little children like staggering in the street, and they're like, is this really responsible? Like, <laughs> you don't really seem to know where you are. Um, but you yeah, know, it was a really really good day. A lot of fans went to the new stadium to kind of just 
chant outside of it um which is yeah, a bit yeah. a bit random because there's loads of security outside the station because uh, not outside the stadium sorry because i don't know fans are just going a bit mental but it's a really good day really good atmosphere um so i if you ever get the chance to visit the stadium i highly recommend it yeah i'd like to i've been to qpr so my next point was their main rivals are fest- fellow west london clubs fulham and qpr i've been to qpr for like a, a midweek league one game and that was they're quite old i mean obviously Brentford have now moved from Griffin Park, but if you think about when they were at Griffin Park, you know, Fulham, QPR, and then Griffin Park with Brentford, all have old stadiums, quite historic. Uh, I've walked past Fulham Stadium a million times, but never been inside for a game. So, um, yeah, that's their rivals. It's quite a, typically quite a affluent part of London, but um, uh, that area, but um, not necessarily renowned for having large football stadiums and large football following um, until possibly now. Yeah, also to follow up on that point about uh, that playoff day, uh, the Brentford fans are also celebrating Fulham's relegation. So around one in 10 fans would be like, we're going up and Fulham are down um, or the Khans are down because obviously that's who kind of runs the club. Uh, Covier is Tom Kearney. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what was going on on the day as well, which was quite funny to hear. Yeah, I mean, I'll throw back to that playoff final. But I mean, as much as they've like kind of obviously got one up on Fulham now, they're in the Premier League, Fulham are down. Uh, that Joe Bryan free kick goal in the final. That is just forever going to be the biggest hot dog I think I've ever seen live. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to take some doing. Um, so moving back to Brentford's history, Brentford were elected into the, into the Football League in 1920. Um, their best spell, uh, other than now, um, was in the top flight of English football in the 30s and 40s. Their peak was fifth in the first division in 1935-36, which is their highest ever league finish um however following that three relegations um, between then and 1962 left them in the fourth division and then for the kind of next 50 years or so they were typically yo-yoing between third and fourth tiers <laughs> it's quite a long time to be doing so um before promotion um from league one to the championship in 2014 under mark warburton saw them get back to um at least the top the, the second tier which is good Dean Smith, and before doing this, I completely forgot Dean Smith was at Brentford, but Dean Smith was appointed manager in November 2015, guiding the club to consecutive top 10 finishes in the championship before he departed in 2018. His assistant at the time, Thomas Frank, was appointed his successor and has since masterminded Brentford's rise uh, to the Premier League, defeating Swansea 2-0 in the championship playoff final one year on from their infamous defeat. I went to the pub to watch the Swansea game um couldn't get a, sc- a table next to a screen i missed the whole game and just end up getting pretty drunk so if anyone's got any insight on that game let me know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's just moving on to the, to the current ownership so brentford are owned by lifelong fan uh, and spot sports betting i put giant but perhaps mogul matthew benham uh, so benham was part of the bees united sports group that bought brentford uh, from ron nords in 2000 um, and six, Brentford then becoming the, the first London club to be owned by their supporters or first professional club for any AFC Wimbledon fans listening about to chuck some shade. Um, Benham then entered into a five-year formal um, partnership agreement in 2009 where he'd invest, invest a lot of money in the club um, in return basically for the option of being able to purchase the club from um, the supporters' trust. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's, it's it's really interesting model, Um what what Benham kind of um, implicated or Im- implemented, sorry, at Brentford. I think a lot of fans want to see more fan control at board level. And I know that Benham's still 
um, a Brentford fan and 50 yeah. plus one often gets coined around being like, we need that in England. Like, <laughs> clubs are doing too much. They don't care, which is an argument for another day. But it's interesting without knowing the figures, it'd be interesting to know how much he invested because surely it's like a long-term goal for him to just buy it out from the get-go. Because, you yeah. know, if I go and invest for 40 million pounds and I turn around to the group and be like, oh, hey, uh, you need to repay this investment basically for yeah. it to be equal obviously the trust are going to probably going to empty their wallet out and think well i've got 10 pounds here uh, that's not going to make 40 <laughs> million so you go ahead and buy the club but i guess it is still good he's a lifelong fan i guess the main issue for fans is more that international pool where some bloke has rocked up from qatar or russia or even america has probably never heard of the club and then decides to buy it <laughs> and then, yeah, and then yeah. fans are upset that you keep saying their name wrong, and it's like, yeah, you know what? I can see why fans would be frustrated. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, the average supporter who might be a member of that trust um, hasn't got significant levels of capital. So, um, and it's, it's it's this is a little bit similar, but not too much. It seems a more of a formal partnership. Benham's a fan, so cares about the club and the area. Mm. But um, there's been a bit of a I read read about this recently. There's a bit of a um, a trend of some investors in the football league just kind of loaning money to clubs. So it happened at Sunderland with FF, um, I think it's FFP or FPP, who were like a, a investment vehicle. So Michael Dell, who owns Dell, as many people know, this is a, an investment vehicle that was set up by him and some of his kind of em- employees. And we they loaned Sunderland ten million pounds, which in the end they didn't end up purchasing the club. But it's almost this, this idea that you loan a club ten million pounds who need it if they're in, say, League One, like Sunderland, who weren't doing too well at the time and didn't have funds, um, if, they, if they then can't pay that back for whatever reason, you then get a pretty good option to buy the club. You might have to pay more than 10 million, but it kind of just, it's, it's almost a little bit of like a crude way of getting into the club, just mm. like worming your way into it. But um, with Benham, I think we presume his intentions were a little bit better than what um, Michael's Dell Consortium did. They also did that at Southampton as well, um, I should note. So yeah, in 2012, the Bees United board opted to bring the option forward um, and Benham purchased a controlling stake in the club from um, the Trust. A bit of background on Benham, uh, a professional gambler himself. Uh, he's the owner of Matchbook, which are a peer-to-peer betting exchange and Smart Odds, which is a privately owned company providing statistical research and sports modeling services to pro gambling. So a background in the whole analytical area of football um, and statistics. Um, so that kind of brings me on to um, Benham's acquisition of FC Michland in 2014. Michland were actually in the Danish Superliga when when Benham um, acquired them. So not as uh, not as a steep rise as what um, Graham Potter and Co. Uh, achieved at Osterund in Norway. Um, but at Michland, um, Benham kind of initiated a, a statistical revolution um, around data. So kind of instilled a system based around expected goals and expected points per game. This has become quite a, I mean, a buzzword, expected goals within football, but back in 2014, less so. Um, so they're just examples of metrics that were used uh, and deployed to assess uh, performance. Um, and so um, there's a lot more of that, which I'll come on to. But uh, yeah, it's quite early for him to be kind of initiating that sort of revolution. You know, um, random side note, the expected goals is coming into FIFA 2022. So... Ooh. Uh, so for those of you that are suspect players, aka Dryden himself, um, <laughs> and most of most of the, most people who play me anyway, um, you can't hide now. Oh, you, cool, cool. You can't hide. 
I remember um, Jeff Sterling on, do you remember seeing that on a Gillette Soccer Saturday where he was just absolutely, he was like, expected goals? What is expected? He's like completely tearing apart this idea of expected goals on a Gillette Soccer Saturday with like Matt Letizia and all that. Um, and then now it becomes just a fundamental part of the game. Yeah, because they're absolute dinosaurs. <laughs> and he supports, he's, yeah, he's just going back to supporting Hartlepool, man. Like, they're just such dinosaurs. Like, this is a, a side note or a side take, but... I think there is a problem in this country generally that old pundits are just so archaic in their views, not just only on football, but into any new approach that the game tries to implement. And and Jeff Sterling's even worse because he didn't actually play football as far as I'm aware. And if he did, I didn't know who the hell he played for. At least the other ones can say, I did this at this club. So they have a bit more clout or a bit more of an idea to actually comment. But he's just a little presenter who supports Hartlepool. <laughs> so I'm not surprised he dug into it because it's a bit of a boys club on Soccer Saturday. I do, I did like them as a collective. But now that they've been gone for about 18 months or two years now, I'm ready to move on and get some uh, get some fresh views on the board. Yeah, well, you end up with that sort of punditry when you just assemble a team of ex-players who, you know, have got... I always think it's good to get insight from ex-players because yeah. they actually the game. But that's like one... Fifth or a quarter of the sort of analysis you'd expect to see now, like so. Um, yeah, I agree with you to be fair. Um, so getting back to FC Michelin and uh Benham's re- revolution there. So it was said that teams of analysts would be present at, at every match, which is a bit of a turnaround from what it would have been. So, recording data such as you know, successful corner kick percentage, number of passes in the middle third, number of chances, etc., lots of different metrics. So, essentially, <laughs> he essentially developed a team or an army of analysts to come to games to rec- record certain statistics. Um, and then they'd obviously have a team that, on the back of that to analyze them, them, them numbers and feed that back into the recruitment sides and into the actual um, playing staff as well in terms of performance. Um, and a year after his arrival, uh, Benham's arrival at Michelin, um, the club was crowned uh, Danish Super League of Football Champions for the, for the very first time. So very impressive turnaround um, there. They attempted to cover every metric. They so they had um, set piece specialist uh, Jakob Poulsen um, was was brought in. Um, it's you know it doesn't take a, a an incredibly innovative football team to sign a sign a player who can take a decent for set piece, <laughs> but it just goes to show um, how they're looking to exploit every kind of metric um, and every sort of weakness with the opposition defending by making sure their set pieces are on are on points. Um, a better example of that is that they hired um, now Liverpool throw-in specialist Thomas Gronemark um, to develop clever throw-in routines and work on players' technique. You don't see too many teams with throw-in routines. And, I, I, you know, you can't always have a throw-in routine. If you're on the counter-attack and only two players are there, <laughs> you can't really have a routine. But when you're set up in the final third, I suppose you can. You don't see it too often. Obviously, we had the long ball, long ball, um, long throw, sorry, tactics of old with the likes of Stoke City. Uh, as well but so moving on to Brentford Benham's kind of brought this a very similar model in Brentford a bit of a closed shop (laughs) it has to be said so the actual details of how they've brought across that sort of analysis and statistical modeling isn't isn't overly clear Um, but when we're looking at how they're assembling their B team which we'll come on to and assembling the the squad all together there's been a kind of a move towards looking um, to employ statistical modeling to analyze play performance and focusing across like leagues in Europe um, where markets are less inflated, but player quality levels may exceed those in the championship or be on par. So that's where we've seen a lot of players, such as the like of, you know, Sad Ben Rama come from the continent. We've seen Neil Mopay and Co. Um, 
and Buema as well come across from from Europe, which will come on to um, firstly some of those some of those players firstly into the B team, some straight into the into the first team as well. Yeah, I think statistical modelling football is really a hot topic. It's an interesting one because the constant battle with analysts of the world, the Twitter guys that we all know from the podcast and have seen mm. moving about that have all these cool metrics and visualisation tools, but then also the old school scouts who still play a vital role and actually hold a lot of important positions in terms of head of academy uh, all the way down to grassroots level within a variety of clubs. And there seems to be this happy medium which all these clubs are striving to find, but constantly battling with. The analyst guys want more of a say because they think that we're missing certain things on certain players in certain leagues. The old school scouts are saying data can't tell you everything. It can't tell you about how... I think I was reading in The Dream Factory by Ryan Baldy. Uh, you should check our episode on him that we did before. Great interview. Mm-hmm. Um, in his book, he was talking about how you can't analyse scanning space. He was talking about how the best players let the ball come across them. They don't control it straight away to try and evade attackers. Yeah. You can't really analyze that in data, which I which I get. You know, certain mental traits in players as well. I guess you can't analyze, you know, certain players are very resilient, leadership qualities, all that sort of stuff. So there definitely is a happy medium as well. Um, it is interesting how a club like Brentford would actually do that because, you know, many of us see it as it's all, oh, they do this money ball approach, which actually they've denied themselves, Yeah, you know, which yeah, is yeah. purely based on statistics. You know, I think football is too complex and there's too many variables for that. So it'd be interesting to see how Brentford gets this happy medium. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about, I always see like data on the recruitment side as well, about addressing scale as well. So if you're like a championship club, if you're, so, so for example, if you're a, pre, a top Premier League club, the, the pool of, for your first team anyway, the pool of players from Europe you're likely to be looking at are likely going to be the top five leagues. If you're a championship club like Brentford where when um, they kind of started this revolution, your pool, your network of players that you're going to be looking from in Europe is actually going to be incredibly large. You're going to be looking at, say you take France, for example, you'll be looking at Liga 1 players as well, but you'll also be looking at lower down the leagues um, for your for your first team and the B team set up. And so it's about just like kind of shortlisting, isn't it? Taking data to shortlist players and then you can apply all the skill techniques. So just sending scouts to watch them, looking at video analysis, that sort of thing um, to kind of whittle that down and get that in. So I think that combination is absolutely key. Um, one without the other, perhaps in this day and age doesn't work. Um, what makes you perhaps a bit um, of a dinosaur in that, in, that kind of, um, in that kind of area. So finally, moving on to Brentford, Brentford B. So Brentford made the decision to close its academy and up for a B team model in May 2016, um, citing a number of reasons. The first one is their proximity to clubs such as Arsenal, Spurs, and Chelsea, even just other London clubs. Man, I mean, how many clubs are in London? The two real hotbeds of football in this country, you'd say, are London and the northwest of England, where you've got just a lot of clubs in one area. So it's very difficult for smaller clubs um, to, to, well, to not have this the youth players poached in the academy. We'll get back to, we'll come back to Ian Pervader now. In 2016, <laughs> Ian Pervader was poached by uh, Man City with a compensi- compensation fee stated to be around 30k for the player. So he came across from La Masia and only spent a short time at Brentford, um, which is why it's so low. Um, so under the, the, the elite player performance plan, which I've banged on about a lot, and we discussed now Ryan Baldy interview, um, tariffs, cap the compensation to £3,000 for each year a boy is being developed at a club between the ages of 9 and 11 and then from twelve to six, from ages 12 to 16 the compensation then ranges from £12,500 
to £40,000, depending on the category status of the academy players come from. So if you think about Ian Paveda, he came over from La Masia at Barcelona. He would have spent between, he would have been between the age of 12 and 16. So he's he spent two years at, so he spent two years at Brentford. That's why the fees only around 30k. At, at that similar time, Joshua Bohui, Bohui, who I'd never actually heard of, left for Manchester United um, for around this, a similar price at the same time. So that was two players you know, highly rated in the academy that were not only, and that's what's interesting about this point is that I've just discussed about the fact that proximity to these massive clubs in London. This is two players that were poached by two clubs in the other side of the country. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, it's a fascinating point. I mean, the, the HLP is the symptom of this, I think. This is a symptom of it. I think one of the most underrated themes of this whole podcast is your in-depth knowledge on HPP. Time and time again, not only have you shown your HPP knowledge, but it's also the quick maths. Uh, I think initially you, you struggled. Uh, those of you that remember our second episode, uh, the calculator was out constantly and, and Dryden really was struggling. But to see you to see you fly now, mate, for all the figures, for all the numbers, is, is mm. truly great to see, mate. So round of applause to you. I would clap, yeah. but it's a bit condescending. So I'm just going to leave that one there. Oh, no, I, I really appreciate it. I mean, it's almost as if I've got the numbers written down. It's, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> me- it's mental. Uh, and, and just on that, on the EP, EPLP, there's also an additional fee based on how many how many appearances a player makes uh, in the Premier League or other, other leagues. So this ranges from £150,000 in the Premier League and £5,000 in League Two for 10 appearances. And that ranges to £1.3 million in the Premier League and £50,000 in League Two after 100 appearances. That's not a lot, right? If I've yeah. got a youth player, say Ian Pavilla goes on to play 100 games in the Premier League, right? That means he's become a pretty established Premier League player. For his position and his background as well, he's going to be worth a lot of money. 1.3 million is just not a lot. And this is not clear to me as well when that money becomes available. I really I really think that that should be scrapped for a kind of a sell-on, for, sell-on percentage kind of fee system or structure. So the more they play at the academy, the more investment that's being made, you have a percentage fee structure there rather than flat amounts of money that just, you know, don't make sense over time with inflation and just are insignificant anyway. So Brentford in recent years, um, since closing the academy and opting for the BT model, have targeted players from across Europe um, and players released from England's elite clubs, such as their their rivals in London, uh, really turning a negative on its head in terms of that proximity. So instead of it being an absolute, you know, it taking their players and diluting their academy and really affecting their first team and their profits in the long run, it's actually turned that on its head and said, actually, no, we're going to take these released players from likes of Tottenham and Arsenal and Chelsea and, and co and build out a B team based on those players and players from Europe and actually have a, a pretty good reserve side that could actually benefit the, the first team, particularly when, they, when they're in the championship. Yeah, it's not just the fees, the compensation fees when you when you sell players, um like my, my good mate Ivan Pavetta. Um it, it's it's more than that. It's more about the cost it is to develop these players to begin with. It's roughly said to be five million, but now apparently costs are said to be much higher than that. You know, mm. Ivan Pavetta was different, he wasn't in the academy for very long, but you know, you got guys chilling in academies from you know, six or seven now, all the way to eighteen, and then they, they just yeah. leave for a minimal amount of money when you know they're gonna be a star. Jaden Sancho at Watford's um Arsenal have just signed a guy from Fulham, I can't remember his name, but he got 21 goals in 21 games in the under-18 league last year. I now assume if he goes on to have a successful career, you know, Fulham get minimal money for him and Arsenal can sell him on for two, three mil. 
like Sam Greenwood's another example there. So these mm. clubs are developing these talents for the best part of a decade or even less are really getting cut out. You know, you, you know, you, you put all this time and effort, you know, all these meetings, all this time, all the tournaments, the kits, and then the talent just says, uh, you know what? I don't really fancy him. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. going to go to city or I'm going to go or in London in particular, like you mentioned earlier, there's so many options. Forget United or cities. I can go Charles, I can go Arsenal, I can go Fulham, or maybe not Fulham now, but I can go Tottenham, I can go Palace, and now Category 1 Academy. Mm. Like the, yeah. the options are too mad for these these young stars, and I'm not surprised why clubs like Brentford are deciding to to sack it all off, really. Yeah, and I mean, I, I presume as well, and I, I assume people would be quite uneasy about... So if if big fees start getting chucked about to transacting players, so as a kind of a playing devil's advocate, people would get uneasy about that as well, right? So, I mean, if we started talking about like, so what you mentioned there about that Fulham player going to Arsenal, in theory, when these players are moving and there's compensation involved, you think they'd take in performance. I know it's quite subjective at youth level, but you think, okay, if this player is exceptional, one of the most exceptional talents in London or the country, that should waive a better compensation than this player that hasn't, haven't got the same performance stats but again you're going to start talking about transacting players that are like 14 for mm. big fees and that becomes an easy as well so it's not an easy kind of thing to get around or an easy answer or solution to that problem but it is still quite pertinent um i implore anyone to check out on brentford's youtube channel they've got a video <laughs> where um rasmus Ankerson, um co-director of football there talks about um the brentford, brentford b model he states that no players made the first team in the five years prior to the shift of the BT model. Um, and since then, they've had over 15 graduates, which is a pretty damning statistic. Other uh, staff members there, Phil Giles, who's the other co-director of football um, at Brentford, Kevin O'Connor, who's assistant first-team coach, and Thomas Frank himself, manager, all champion the model. It's, you know, it's, I, I must note the late Rob Rowan, who died a few years ago, um, is said to have come up with that idea. So I thought I'd drop that in there. It's quite a nice uh, thing to draw on. Um, so the B team model, the B team, sorry, did not compete in any league or cup competition, but instead Brentford, um, since they, they rolled out this model, have designed a friendly fixture list against senior sides and youth teams across Europe, including the UK. Um, there's also a video on Brentford's YouTube channel. I, I think you should go there and have a look um, where they basically, it documents them going to Bayern Munich, where Brentford play against their, the Brentford B team play against Bayern's under 19s uh, in 2019, winning 5-2. And it just shows kind of the, it's quite a professional setup because you could think what I just mentioned earlier there, they don't play in a, any competition, any league that you think might not be good for development. These players aren't playing, you know, in league structures, not playing in cup competitions, they're not getting the the effects of playing um, in high pressure games or where there's things on the line, there's high stakes. Um, they're just playing essentially friendlies. But the when you when I watched that video on Brentford's YouTube channel of them of going to to buy in, it really is a really professional setup. You know, they've got. It's just like a first team traveling to to any game. They've got um, pre-match, but after after training, they had like a, a media room or kind of like a video analysis room where they were, they were analyzing the under-19 side they're going to play, um, looking at tactics, looking at how they're going to set up. And it, is, it, it did make me think, actually, this is actually is simulating first-team football, even if they're not playing competitive football. Um, so training style of play is set to mimic, is set to mimic the first team entirely, um, including tactics. Uh, you get that at a lot of clubs. I know Klopp does that at Liverpool with their youth sides. Um, but it's meant to make the transition into the, the first team a lot easier. Um, so mostly, so I mentioned the the European tours since COVID, that's been restricted largely to to the UK. And actually, since Brexit, which obviously is quite a while ago now, they've had to kind of re 
kind of uh, take a look, review the the model because in that in that interview with with Rasmus Ankerson, he says that the majority of players they've actually signed from Europe in the last few years, um, they kind of did an exercise where they took those players they'd signed, run them through the new point system as like an exercise. And actually, the majority of them wouldn't have been able to come across. So Brian Mbwemo, Neil Mopé, Saipa Marama, who I mentioned earlier, all those players would have been out of the question. And they are now out of the question. So they've said that, so Anderson states that they're going to have to change their tact now to look at UK and Ireland players or just UK, well, just UK players, essentially. Um, so the, the effects that's going to have on their BT model could be quite stark, particularly with other teams like Huddersfield Town um, moving towards that model. So to, to, to finish off, we're going to have a look at a little discussion point here, which is, is the BT model worth it? And also, is it the right thing uh, to do? So two sides there, one side being kind of moral points. I can totally see why a club like Brentford would opt for that model, because as we just discussed before, there's nothing stopping their players from getting from getting poached, uh, diluted the quality of their academy. I thought, not just to chuck back the sun at every time, but... I thought it was a good comparison because of like the where Sunderland are in the in the country in terms of location compared to Brentford. If you compare those two clubs, someone like Sunderland, I think we would struggle with a B team model because we don't have those clubs around us who are releasing players on the on the regular. So you know we're not in the northwest, we're not in London. There's only a handful of clubs around us. There wouldn't be that pool of players, particularly following Brexit, where we haven't got that European um, kind of outlook we wouldn't have those sort of players around us. But then on the flip side, because of our proximity or lack of proximity, sorry, to bigger clubs, the chance of our players getting poached is lower. I say that we've lost Joe Hugo, Logan Pye, Sam Greenwood in recent years to the clubs that are nowhere near us. Manchester United is still a while away, three hour drive. Arsenal, we lost Sam Greenwood too, a long way away. Mm. Um, so perhaps that, that factors against that. But then we've been a League One club for a while, so there's other factors in that. I think if we've been a Premier League club, we might have had a better chance of of um, retaining these players. And then it begs the question, what would happen if every team opted for a B team model as well? You know, we, we need academies in the game so that players can develop. Um, and if we didn't, then so many, you know, if, if so many of these clubs like Brentford just close their academies, then it's just going to give more opportunity for these bigger clubs to create satellite academies or centres of excellence in different parts of the country. And again, we just benefit and benefit in the elite. Yeah, no, massively. I think it's, I think irrespective of who you support or follow, you know, the EPP and the super reforms made by the FA in the 90s when Lyles Hall closed had been brought in to improve academy football, right, to produce better players and ultimately succeeded in doing so. I think England as a nation uh, are going for a really good wave of English talent. You're looking at the likes of uh, Jude Bellingham, uh, yeah. Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, Bakayo Saka, Phil Foden. In particular, Phil Foden and Jude Bellingham, the types of players I haven't really seen England produce for quite some time. Um, you know, maybe even a generation. So, kudos or a massive um, big thumbs up to those reforms for enabling those clubs to produce those talents by giving more legislation and ruling to clubs to produce better players. However, even though it succeeded, that's come at a cost, right? HPP predominantly benefits the, the big teams. Um, and obviously there's a mental well-being aspect of some of the reforms as well for players. But if we were to rid of that for a BT model in a way, it would be deeply flawed, right? Because what we're doing is we're essentially removing the aspect of developing young players 
um, at a young age from when they're six or seven or eight, maybe not six, but nine or 10. Mm. I mean, the B team model would mean that a lot of players aren't being developed until a lot later. And I think we'd regress in terms of where we are as a nation. But I think more needs to be done to kind of get the clubs on board. Because as you mentioned earlier, with the compensation fees, the way it is now isn't profitable. Yeah, very true. And what one thing to finish on as well, I think, or a point to note, and this is just this is actually based on no crunching of the numbers, but the B team model that Brentford have employed mustn't be cheap. So, you know, you think about when they were doing these European tours um and co, that's gonna cost a lot of money within itself, you know, flying to different parts of Europe every every weekend, staying in hotels. You know, it it's obviously sounds like nothing to a football club but when you apply to a, a fixture list of like, I don't know, twenty to thirty games in a season. Um, with a squad of like 25, that's going to add up quite a lot. Then you've got, to, you've got to think as well, if all the players that are in that B team are all between the age of 16 and 20, and that's the profile that they they identify to go into that because these are players that are, are meant to be primed to be going into the first team, they can they might come at a cost, they might come at a fee, and their, their, their wages might, if they've been playing, for example, if they've picked them up from an academy, they've been released from an academy, okay, yeah, they might still be on a, close to youth contract wage or their first professional contract wage when they come to Brentford. But they actually might have been playing for the first team of another club. Their wage might be quite significant. So my point is, actually running this BT model that Brentford have, I don't think is actually going to be any cheaper than their academy model. I just think it, they referred to the academy model that they had or the, in the, with their proximity to all these clubs as being a per investment. They never said they couldn't afford it. They said it's a per investment, which is correct. I don't think the B team model that they're employing is going to be any cheaper. It's just a far better investment. So it just it just kind of just adds to that point around the B team models. Is it available to everyone? You know, can your can your um, your poorer club in in League One or wherever they might be suffering the same fate as they as um, as Brentford have been doing, losing players left, right, and centre. But actually, if they close their academy, are they going to be able to employ this successful B team model? Because <laughs> it might just be, you know, might be as expensive, if not more. So it's just a point to 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 end on there. But um, I do think it's a. Uh, I can see exactly why Brentford do it. But if I was to be honest, if Sunderland employed that model, I'd be disappointed. Uh, to be honest, but I think it's always disappointing being a Sunderland fan. It is, yeah. So it just adds to the heartache, and the pain. <laughs> Uh, actually, we've finished uh, the pod in a very long time, uh, so I'm a little bit rusty. Um, but that's it from us this week. Uh, thank you very much to Dryden um, for doing the pod on Brentford B. Uh, one of the original ideas we had for the pods. Um, very excited to release it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I haven't really got much else to add. Uh, I'm running out of things to say, <laughs> so we'll catch you all <laughs> next week. Yeah, cheers, guys. Cheers.